Collins' fifth class this morning, we will ask our, uh, yeah, our brother Rick to come forth and uh, read for us chapter 5 of James. Let's see his Bible class on the Epistle of James, chapter 5, entitled, The Coming of the Lord Draweth Nigh. Brothers and sisters, at our last class on the Epistle of James, we did not by any means conclude chapter 4, and we would just like to draw a few points of James chapter 4 out again. And I can see Brother Richard getting all concerned up there. I haven't got this on, Richard. It's in my pocket. So we would like to uh, just speak a little while about some thoughts that come to us in the end or toward the end of James chapter 4 before we do go into chapter 5. And the areas that we would like to consider are really from verse 10 and onwards in chapter 4 because they do really have a very great bearing on our conduct with one another and our conduct toward our everyday activities. In verse 11 then, we read there that James says to us, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother, and judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law, and judgeth the law. But if thou art a judge of the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. And we do really need to have a look very carefully at what James is saying in this particular part of his epistle to us. If we turn over to Matthew chapter 7, first of all, and we know that much of the epistle of James is extracted out of his half-brother's words on what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Many of the thoughts and ideas are also taken from the book of Proverbs. So there is much rich exhortation for us throughout James because he bases it on the practical words of the wisest man who ever lived and also the Son of God who was of course wiser than the wisest man that ever lived. Now that might be confusing to you. I'm not using man, brothers and sisters, in the sense in which we understand it as related to ourselves because Jesus Christ was different from us. He was the Son of God. He was not just a mere man. So Solomon really is the wisest man who ever lived, while the Son of God is, of course, wiser than any man. Now, in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 1 to 4, we read a little section there about the Lord's sayings about judgment. And he warns us that we should judge not, that we be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged." And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? And there is really a very great difficulty which confronts us all when we attempt such an exercise. The Lord, brethren and sisters, is not condemning an exercise of trying to extract a splinter out of somebody else's eye. He is not saying that at all. 
He is saying that we are completely disqualified if we have not given the proper attention to ourselves. He's not therefore condemning discernment. He is, however, condemning a final judgment. And the final judgment is, of course, associated with the ability or the capacity to judge rightly as far as eternal life is concerned. Jesus is warning that we should not do that. But he is not saying that we cannot exercise the powers of discernment that are shown to us in the word. We are to judge that. We are to discern between right and wrong. But we are not to do it in a manner which would presume that we are above the law. Because if we do stand in a position outside of the law, then we are above the law. And that's what James is trying to say to us. We are the servants of Christ. We have no right to condemn other people. But we do have a right to exercise the principles of the truth in our own life and we do have a right to convey them to other people. That's a very great necessity that falls upon every one of us as the care of the members of the body is extended from one to the other. The bride and the virgins must talk to one another. They must say what they feel about one another. That doesn't mean, brethren and sisters, that we just say every word that is in our heart that might be very wrong about our brother. That means that we must look at one another and help one another into the kingdom of God. And it will take a very great deal of discernment to do that. It will take a kind of gift that only comes by asking wisdom from God. And that is a nice manner of approach. The brusque manner just does not work, does it? We have got to learn to judge righteous judgment, not according to the sight of our eyes or according to the hearing of our ears, but judgment that is based upon the principles of the truth with a singular intention. So here's a situation that James says, we should not speak evil one of another. Now let's just ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, what that really means. If we have a look at the Greek word for evil there, it means a slanderer or a traducer. It is something, therefore, which by its nature is untrue. So let's just make an example. Say, for example, you know that I've committed murder. Are you at liberty to tell anybody else or not? the ecclesia is going to make a decision about that, aren't they? As to whether I am fit or unfit for fellowship. How is the ecclesia going to decide if it's only you who know? They can't make a decision. And if you're not prepared to say anything about that, then all you do is create suspicion about what I've been engaged in. Somebody's accused me of something. And all you do in the meeting is create an aura of suspicion. I wonder what it's all about. The ecclesia, brothers and sisters, has got to know. And if there is such a case like that, the ecclesia has a right to know. But they don't have a right, therefore, to just go retailing that out of hand. 
the ecclesia knows the situation. Have they spoken evil? No, they haven't spoken evil. They haven't slandered me. They haven't been a traducer toward me. They've spoken the truth. And while they won't rejoice in that fact, it is a fact of life. Now that doesn't of course mean that when we come down into minor matters in our life that everybody has the ability and the right to tell everybody else what they think each other's faults are. That might be simply a matter of interpretation but murder is not a matter of interpretation. We have got therefore to try to use our minds, exercise them rightly to see what level of matter is involved. So the exhortation of James when he says speak not evil one of another brethren is the kind of whispering and backbiting that goes around very often on the basis of an interpretation of the fact. So that if somebody came along and said well I know why he committed murder we might be going very much past what James says is allowable. So then James says I will give a reason as to why we should not speak evil of one another. Because if we speak evil of one another, we have judged our brother. Now you may say, and it's true, that murder may be forgiven. That's true, it may be forgiven. So now James is bringing to our attention the further step along the way that because he did that, he will not be in the kingdom of God. That's a different matter altogether, and that is what James is proscribing here. He is saying that he's just not right to do that. Now let's just sit back a moment, brothers and sisters, and I find this very interesting to weigh up. That sounds terrible to say that somebody won't be in the kingdom of God, doesn't it? But what about if we say, I think this brother or this sister will be in the kingdom of God. Have we not likewise usurped the authority and the prerogative of the judge? Is it our business to say he will be in the kingdom of God? But it just sounds nice, doesn't it? It sounds a whole lot better than saying he won't be. So you see, brothers and sisters, we have to be very, very careful as to whether we're going to fall foul of what James says is allowable for us to do. And we can easily endorse his position when we say, oh yeah, that's something bad and it sounds terrible. But simply because we usurp the authority and the only prerogative of the judge, we might be doing it in other directions that are just as bad. And therefore, falling foul of the principle that he who judges his brother, whether it's for good or ill, that is in the final sense, not in the sense of discerning whether the thing is right or wrong, but whether we judge in the final sense one way or the other, we have taken ourselves outside of the law and we are not operating upon principles that are inside of the law under which we must fall. We've taken ourselves outside and we become what James says, a judge of the law. We're no longer falling under its dominion, we are presiding over it. And from outside of the reins of that law, we operate as if there was no law. 
That's what James is saying us. And then he says in verse 12, there is but one lawgiver and that lawgiver is able to save or destroy. See what he's saying? He's saying we might make a judgment about a brother, good, bad or indifferent, but there is only one lawgiver, there is only one who can operate outside the framework of the law and it's the judge of all the earth. And he is able to either save or to destroy. Who art thou therefore who says he'll be saved or he'll be destroyed? We are nothing. We just cannot allow our minds to go along that course, brethren and sisters. We have just got to stop at the discernment between what is right and what is wrong. And that is a matter that is altogether encouraged in us. The Apostle Paul says in Hebrews that we might learn to become skilful in the word so that we know how to discern between good and evil, a very necessary quality in our life. But to take that to the next step is entirely illegal. We just are not permitted to exercise our minds in that way. So then he says in verse 13, Go to now ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapour that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. What about today? What about any day? Well, we know they take 24 hours to go past, don't they? Any one day takes 24 hours to go past. It starts at sunrise as far as our normal activities are concerned and it generally concludes at sunset or thereabouts. But then we need to ask the question, brethren and sisters, who owns life? Who gives to us the power of enjoyment of the day? Or the productivity of the day? Who gives to us that power? What right do we to possess the power to harness the day for good or ill or whatever we may do? And what is sure about our life? There is something very sure about tomorrow. God has established his purposes on the basis that one 24-hour period will follow the next. There's an absolute guarantee that tomorrow's will never run out. But James is talking about our participation in tomorrow. What is there sure about that? There's nothing sure at all, even about our participation in it let alone what we're going to do tomorrow. We don't therefore, says James, even have the right to be there tomorrow. So how on earth can we say that tomorrow we will go into such a city and we will continue there a year and we'll buy and sell and get gain? It's like the man in the parable of the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't it? Who was on his bed and he was saying, oh, I know what I'll do. I said, I'm going to make bigger and better barns and I will fill those barns with good things. And that very night his life was required of him. And he lost, therefore, any of the power that he wanted to exercise on the morrow. There's a brevity and a frailty about life, brethren and sisters, that we don't often take into consideration. We might even say, well, I promised to do something for my brother or my sister tomorrow. What have we said? 
the wise man Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5, he says, Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Because when you make a promise, it's heard somewhere else than on earth. And we need therefore to be extremely careful about what we say we are going to do. We might have plans that are one, two, three years in advance. What do we do with them? And is it, brethren, on occasions that we just say a very glib, God willing, Lord willing, whatever you may say, on the end, and that seems to give to our minds a stamp of approval to our plans and projects, and we can just take them on as often and as freely as we like? You see what James says in verse 15? For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will. But does he really make an emphasis on the saying? No, he doesn't. He really makes a very great emphasis on what we ought to say. If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or do that. And when we say something about tomorrow, it is obvious from James's comments, considering the background of the brevity and the frailty of life and the lack that we have of a right to tomorrow, that there is a strong inflection in James's mind about the way in which those words are said. That it ought therefore to be with a deep and premeditated idea in mind that we have really considered as to whether we are able to perform that which we say we're going to do. And then add, we know that we may not be able to, whatever it may be, because we may not be able to. Our life may be required this night because we are frail creatures. We do only have a given lifespan and there are many things that could occur to arrest the process and the progress of our life. It may be something serious. It may be something very minor. But it can stop us. And so therefore there ought to be a very deep feeling associated with the way in which we say we're going to do so and so, God willing, if it be the will of our Heavenly Father. It's not in a superstitious way. It's not just in a glib way of running those off as if they were some good insurance as to why what we think we're going to do tomorrow will happen, but it is really in the way that the psalmist understood things in Psalm 139. And he said that wherever he went, whether it was down into the depths of the earth or ascend into heaven, he found that the power and the presence of God was there all the time. And that's the only guarantee, brothers and sisters, that we've ever got about the future that our works, that our ways are entirely resolved into the hand of him with whom we have to do. So he says in verse 16, But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And here we have some very important things to remember. You see, the Apostle Paul gave a definition of sin that is very much in harmony with what James says here. And he said, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Just consider that definition. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And what does that mean? 
Where does faith come from? In what does it have its springs? Well, it has its springs in the promises of the Word of God. So therefore, Paul is saying, whatsoever is not done because of its main springs in the Word and in the promises of God is sin. Anything else is sin. So therefore, to him that knows how brief and how frail our life is, that knows that it is not in their power to command the morrow, that knows that it is not in their power or their prerogative to have right to participate in tomorrow, to him that knows that and doesn't conduct his life in accordance with that, he does sin because he knows how to do good but he he doth it not. To him it is sin. It is very difficult, brethren and sisters, to maintain that. To maintain a very great consciousness of the presence of God all our life. And that's exactly what Moses had whereby he would succeed in the court of Pharaoh the king without anybody to help him. He saw him who was invisible. That was the secret of Moses' life. He saw him who was invisible and it kept him going every single day. Just a nominal ascent to the brevity and the frailty of life is not what James is talking about. He's trying to engender in us a full consciousness of the power of God, that the eyes of Yahweh run to and fro in all the earth to show themselves strong in the behalf of him whose heart is right toward him. So now coming into chapter 5, very great exhortations again, very practical exhortations as we know James always delivers. He says, Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. For your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped together treasure for the last days. What's he talking about in this, in this particular passage? Well, there's some very great exhortations that come to us out of the Proverbs in this regard. It's a general exhortation not to amass things. Not just gold and silver, but it's a general exhortation that we all need in this affluent age not to amass things. Because man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. As the Lord said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but I have not where to lay my head. So there's our example, brethren and sisters. Things only inflict us. Things only make the road harder to walk. So when we turn back to Proverbs chapter 23, we are given an insight into the mind of our Lord in Matthew chapter 6 and also in James chapter 5 verses 1 to 3. Very similar words are used in these three passages. In verse 4 of Proverbs chapter 3, there is quite a definite commandment to us. Verse 4 of Proverbs 23, Labour not to be rich, cease from thine own wisdom. If you're labouring to be rich, says God, you are setting your eyes on something which is not, verse 5. 
because riches certainly make themselves wings and they fly away like an eagle toward heaven. That's riches. One day they're here, one day they're gone. So it is futile, it is valueless to labour to be rich. But the trouble is, brethren and sisters, we say, well, what's rich? That's our problem, isn't it? We say, what is rich? And we make a comparison with the richest man we know and we say, well, if we only have half as much as him, we're not rich. And we will always do that. We always seek around for the thing that's going to excuse us most of all, to adopt the course we want to take. That's a very real problem with us. Now let's go on to see what Solomon says after he has said that about riches. Verse 6, Eat not thou the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meat. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. Now here's a judgment that Solomon is telling us we ought to make. You go out somewhere and partake of somebody's hospitality and if you're finding they're counting the buns you eat and how many slices of pie you have, there's something wrong. There is, isn't there? We know there's something wrong. And so Solomon says to us, don't eat the bread of him that hath an evil eye. But how is he linking that with riches? Well, he is linking that with riches, brethren and sisters, because Christ says he is linking that with riches if we go over to Matthew chapter 6, and we will do that in a few moments. But first of all, let's go back into an earlier place in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, because these matters of Proverbs 23 come right out of Deuteronomy chapter 15, and we will begin to see just how well the mind of James has taken in a broad sweep of many of the Old Testament scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 7. And this is a matter that James has already addressed previously in his writings to us. If there be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of thy gates in thy land which Yahweh thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thine heart nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother, but thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him, and shalt surely lend unto him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. Beware that there be not a thought in thy wicked heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and thine eye be double against thy poor brother and thou givest him naught and he cry unto Yahweh against thee and it be sin unto thee thou shalt surely give him and thine heart shall not be grieved when thou givest him because that for this thing Yahweh thy Elohim shall bless thee in all thy works and in all that thou puttest thine hand unto what's being said? It's being very clearly said that when a person sees the need of another, he is not to harden his heart. 
He's not to be grieved when he gives. He's going to give him enough for his requirements. And he's not to have a double eye. And what the Lord God is saying to us, brethren and sisters, is that you have to give willingly. (coughs) You have to give singly. Because God is single. And he will only give for a single reason. Don't let the eye be double. Because when you see the look in a person's eye which says he really wants to restrain but he thinks he has to give, he's got a double eye. He's got an evil eye according to Proverbs chapter 23. So what's his eye upon? He hasn't set his affections on things above. He's not the son of God. He's the son of his father, the the Diabolos. Because he has given to preference to fleshly things. That's what he's doing. So when we come over into Matthew chapter 6 and we read our Lord Jesus Christ's explanation of these two passages, he says to us very, very clearly in the 6th chapter of Matthew and at verse 22, perhaps we should read from verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. For the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thy eye be double, evil, straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 15, if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters. He just can't have an eye on one thing and an eye on the other. He either displays himself to be loyal to the one or to the other. And if we've got an evil eye, brothers and sisters, if there is a duplicity of motive, we are serving the flesh. There just isn't any doubt about that. James, Christ and Deuteronomy say that. We are not allowed to be grieved. We are not allowed to want to keep the things that we see our brother has need of when we have it in the power of our hand to distribute willingly. We must give willingly. So therefore the exhortation comes right to us in James chapter 5, doesn't it? When the clear explanation or the clear... ...is that shall come upon you. Because what will riches do for, for a man in the day of wrath? Nothing. What will the amassing of things all around us, brethren and sisters, do for us in the day of wrath? They will only make it harder for us to willingly answer the call when we do in fact receive the call to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Gold and silver do rust away. Gold and silver can become cankered and the rust of them will be a witness against us and it will eat as it were our flesh with fire. We have heaped together treasure therefore for the last days if we are that kind of people. 
And if that wasn't enough, brothers and sisters, to show that James was taking his idea right out of Deuteronomy chapter 15, look at verse 4. Behold, the hire of the labourers who have reaped down your fields, and he's very directly talking to the brethren, the hire of the labourers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, cries, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of Yahweh Sabaoth. So what's going on here? Well, it was told the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy that if they hire somebody for wages, don't let the hire lie all night until the morning. Give it to him right that day. And what does it tell us about our debts, brothers and sisters? It tells us to pay them. It tells us to pay them as soon as they fall due. What's our attitude to our debts? It can wait till next month. It's not very big. He can wait. Sometimes we say that, don't we? We are not to keep back by fraud the due deserts of those who have laboured for us because the cries of the people who have the need are entered into Yahweh Sabaoth. And who's Yahweh Sabaoth? Well, if we turn back to Isaiah chapter 1, we'll find out who Sabaoth is. Yahweh Sabaoth, brethren and sisters, is very intensely activated today. He is intensely activated. In, chapter, in Isaiah chapter 1 and at verse 7, maybe we should read even from verse 5, because this passage in Isaiah's prophecy is very, very similar to the language of the letter that Christ wrote to the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. Verse 5, Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head there is no soundness in the body, but there are wounds and bruises and putrefying sores that have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. And he's taking our mind, brothers and sisters, out into a field in Israel in the time of harvest. When to gain refreshment and protection from the heat of the sun in harvest, they would make a flimsy structure out in the middle of the field where to the reapers or the harvest gatherers of the field might seek refuge for a little time. And he says, Except Yahweh of armies, Yahweh Sabaoth, except he had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been like Sodom and we would have been like unto Gomorrah. And there, brethren and sisters, is what James says is the situation of people who keep back by fraud that which is properly due. He's talking particularly to brethren who did it. Yes, that's true. Who did it to their weaker and their poorer brethren and sisters. And that happens from time to time in the brotherhood. It does happen. And what's going on? Is God right in calling the poor of this world rich in faith to be heirs of the kingdom? 
Is he right in how he treats those people? Is he right to be described as the judge of the fatherless and the widows? Well, there is Yahweh Sabaoth into whose ears is entering the cries and the pleas of those who really can't look after themselves. And we are all such. And Yahweh Sabaoth, brethren and sisters, that militant title of the deity, as we sometimes call it, is always employed, it is always employed as Yahweh hovering over a mere remnant of his people. And you go through the prophecies of Malachi and of Zechariah and of Haggai in which there is the work of God being conducted by a weak remnant as they have returned from Babylonish captivity back to build up the city and the temple and Yahweh of armies is used all the time through those three prophecies. And it's Yahweh of armies who is hovering over us today. Except he had left a very small remnant, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. And we are like Sodom and Gomorrah, brethren and sisters, as we take in a sweep of ecclesial life today. We are in Sodom and Gomorrah outside and Sodom and Gomorrah is encroaching inside. And we need to beware of that fact so that we can meet it with the strength and the tenacity of our minds that that calls upon us to do. We do really need to be aware that Yahweh of armies is hovering over a very small remnant of his people. And he always has and he always will. And we might just say, brothers and sisters, that although we're going to talk about the situation of Europe tonight to our interested friends, God is nowhere near as interested in that as he is in this room. Because here are the people who are the objects of his love. He's far more intensely interested in what's happening here today than he is in Europe. That's just simply a necessary link in the chain that will bring all nations to Jerusalem to be judged by him. And it happens to be necessary because it's been prophesied that it will happen. But we, brethren and sisters, are the people who should actually be participating in that. Because that's why the prophetic record has been given. So that we can be drawn up to a mental affinity with God know what his purpose is because he's only given his prophecies to his servants, to know what his purpose is in advance so that we can be actually involved in doing that together with the angels because we've got our minds on the right level and if our minds are on the right level we will understand the plan and purpose of God. We'll be able to see it a little way in advance. And you just imagine, brothers and sisters, if, and we could go into this at length, what if we believed that the plan and purpose of God did not incorporate the necessity of the uniting of Europe? What if we believed that? That that was not necessary and that it was not prophesied? Would our minds be right with God or wouldn't they? They wouldn't be. The prophecies have been given so that we can do that. And therefore it rests with us, brethren and sisters, not only to interpret it, but to interpret it rightly. That does not mean to say that we will know everything about what God does before he does it. It doesn't mean to say that we will know how he will do what he will do. But it does say that we ought to be able to see the plan and the method of God's attack so that we can be involved with the angels in heaven 
in the work of God right now. So coming back into James then, there are of course some very great complaints that James makes about the people of his days as we go on through verses 5 and 6. Ye have lived in pleasure, he says, on the earth and been wanton and have nourished your hearts as for a day of slaughter. You've condemned and killed the just one and he doesn't resist you. Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Have that kind of endurance that thinks about the trials and tribulations with a calm delight and that is able to sail over them because Christ is in the vessel. That's what he means in verse 7. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and he has got long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. And he's giving to us a picture of the farmer in Israel. Looking at the geographical and the climatic conditions of Israel, knowing that when they go out to sow their grain, that's in about March or April. I'm sorry, it's not that time, is it? Yes, I've got to just revolve myself a little bit because it's the other end of the year down our way. It is that time when they go out and sow their seed. No, I'm getting it right now. They're in a Mediterranean climate, not yours. So they go out and they sow their seed in August, September, October or somewhere about that time having received a heavy rainfall so that the growth might spring up. And through the winter months, which are not quite like yours in Israel, they're rather more like ours, they experience a growing period of that crop. And then the latter rains come so that the grain will grow up into its full ripe ears that it might be harvested about April or May. So he's making a lesson about that and he's telling us that we should be patient therefore brethren unto the coming of the Lord. But who's the husbandman? Well in some respects we are but in other respects our Lord Jesus Christ is the husbandman. And what is James therefore saying? He's saying the husbandman is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. And he has got long patience until he receive the early and the latter rain. That he sees the springing forth and the germination of his word in the hearts of people and he waits until it's ready to harvest just like a normal husbandman does. And it is Christ who is depicted here who is the husbandman who has long patience, who has macrothumia, long endurance as he waits for the early and latter rain. Be ye also enduring, says James to us. Establish your hearts, because the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Now we just want to run down a little bit now because we haven't really got much more time at our disposal. We want to run down to the latter parts of James chapter 5, perhaps going in at verse 12. For here we meet something that James says to the brethren of his day and to our day, above all things he says, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your yea not yea, lest ye fall into condemnation. What does he mean? 
Well, we know that our Lord Jesus Christ has a few words for us in the Sermon on the Mount about swearing. He says, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, neither by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by the city of the city of Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. What does he mean by that? Does he mean, brethren and sisters, that they are the only things by which we could swear? There's plenty of statements that the Gentiles make that fall into this category. I don't know, there might be different ones on this continent to the, 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 than there are at home. But quite often you will say, you will hear said, by Jove. It's really only contraction of the word Jehovah. That's all it's said for. By Jingos is a word that is only a contraction of Jesus Christ. For Pete's sake is only taking the name of St. Peter and giving it a shorter word. That is in Catholic language. There are many things, brethren and sisters, in which we can drag the dignity and the honour of God and of Christ down to men's level. We need to be aware of that in our speech. Our speech, says the Apostle Paul, ought always to be seasoned with salt so that what comes forth out of our lips is the words of a tree of life. Our tongues are not our own. We are not a guide of our own selves, brothers and sisters. We are given to our Lord Jesus Christ for his use and for his service and for his glory. So when we say, by whatever we might say, we will do this or do that, by heavens we will do this, what are we saying? We are told not to swear by the heaven because it is God's throne, nor by the earth because it is God's footstool. Let our yea be yea. Let us be known, brethren and sisters, to say yes or no. Because both of those ways, says James, are positively virtuous. And if the answer to a proposition is no, don't be afraid to say it. If the answer to a proposition is yes, don't be afraid to say it. But be known also by the fact that you are a man or a woman who really does take your word seriously because of every word of valueness, of, of valuelessness, of every word of vanity, we shall give account of ourselves in the day of judgment. Then in verse 13, the question is asked, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. What does that mean? Well, it matters not, says James, what our present condition and attitude of mind is, there's really only one outlet that's satisfactory. It's giving vent of it to God. So that if we are afflicted, we pray. If we are merry, we sing psalms. Is that how we conduct our lives? We might be afflicted sometimes, brethren and sisters. We might be seriously afflicted sometimes. And there's a statement that the Gentiles have conjured up that goes like this and it comes from old farmers and they say God look after me in the fair weather and I'll look after myself in the foul you know there really is a spirit in us to do that sometimes isn't there and affliction come up, comes upon us and we say we're going to fix this we're going to get out of this we'll make some way don't you worry that's not what James says to us 
He says if we're afflicted, we pray. If we are merry, we sing psalms. We don't give ourselves to the modern type of music that excites base desire. We give ourselves to the music that will soothe and comfort and console and give a true outlet to the real object of our praise and of our thanksgiving. If we're merry, we sing psalms, says James. And then he says in verse 14 and verse 15, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the ecclesia and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Now, brethren and sisters, we know that in the brotherhood today, those verses have been taken up and they've been given an application that they, uh, that they do not of themselves have. They have got nothing whatsoever to do with the Holy Spirit gifts in the first century or the supposed Holy Spirit gifts in our century or even the present possession of the Holy Spirit in our century. Those verses have got nothing whatsoever to do with that. Now let's carefully analyse them and see what is being said. Is any sick among you? That's the question at issue. James is going to direct us to a course of action which will be a necessary one, a proper one, in the respect of somebody being sick. And if we are sick, says James, we should call for the elders of the ecclesia and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, brethren and sisters, let's just see the situation. Somebody is sick. And it's the sick person who calls for the elders of the ecclesia. Would you be happy to have elders in your ecclesia who actually needed to be advised that you needed their presence? If you go into a hospital or have some accident or have some serious disease, do you actually have to run to the arranging brethren of the ecclesia and say, look, I'm sick? They know, don't they? And if it's some serious operation that you're, you're going to undergo, they know before you get to hospital. So that's not the kind of sickness that is here being described. It is a sickness, very obviously, of which the elders know nothing. That's why they need to be called. So a person becomes sick and they therefore call the elders of the ecclesia that the elders of the ecclesia might come and pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. What does that imply? Well, it very obviously implies a sickness the type of which we are not really prepared to confess openly. That's the kind of sickness that is there talked about. It's a spiritual sickness. We might be languishing at the meeting. We might have trouble paying attention. We might have difficulty doing our readings. We may not be able to approach our God in prayer. We may not even be able to give expression to our feelings in some way. But we know there's a malady. What do we do about it? Just continue on in our merry way? Do nothing about it? Are we concerned about our own state before God? Yes, we are. 
but we really haven't got the courage to say so to anybody. It may be because we feel that somebody will betray us if we tell them. That's why we've got to have the kind of elders that James talks about in chapter 3. That they're not people who are going to retail our difficulties. Because if they are, they're not worthy of our confidence. So these elders, says James, are going to be the people in whom we can confide in spiritual malady. We've got a real problem. We've done what we can about it, so we think. So we call for the elders of the ecclesia. We are ashamed of our own situation. And doesn't that happen very often? It might only be because we've done one thing that we are very grossly ashamed of and we can't face the brethren anymore, or so we say. So we don't go to the meeting because of that reason. Call the elders of the meeting, says James, is the wise course to take. And the elders will pray over the person. It's got nothing to do with laying on of hands. Nothing whatsoever. You find in that verse, brethren and sisters, anywhere where it says about laying on of hands. It simply says, let the elders pray over the person. And the elders will also anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And what does that mean? Well, it means that the elders are skillful in applying the balm of the word of God, which is the oil of gladness. And they are going to therefore bring to bear advice that will soothe and comfort and sustain and encourage the person who is so sick. And what's the result of that? If they do that in the name of the Lord, you listen, brethren and sisters, in verse 15. It doesn't say that the prayer of the elders shall save the sick. It says the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. So what has happened in the ministration of the elders of the ecclesia is that they have been able to point out in their wisdom that this man is seriously lacking in some way. And by their ministrations to him, what they have done is made him able to approach the matter in the only way that it can be handled, and that is he gives himself to prayer. Something of which he has been afraid and I'm unable to do before his God. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. That tells us what kind of a sickness it is, doesn't it? It's not a sickness that we need an operation for to have a gallbladder removed. It's not any other kind of sickness than one that is directly associated with sin. It's got nothing to do whatsoever with laying on of hands or the gifts of the Holy Spirit or the gift of the Holy Spirit power. It's got everything to do, brethren and sisters, with the wisdom of men who have found the principles of God and who are elders who can be confided in so that brethren and sisters with their problems when they've committed sins are able to come to them and they will draw out of them the source of that sin, what it stands for and how to re re redress the situation altogether. And so the verse goes on into verse 16 and it says, Confess your faults one to another 
and pray one for another that ye may be healed. What does that mean? Does that mean, brother and sisters, that every little mistake you make you must tell to your brother and sister? Of course not. And neither does it mean that there should be a retailing of our particular problems to one another. But in a general sense, we all admit that we have got a towering weight of problems in our own life. And that it's only the Lord that can sustain them. What can we do about our problems? We have no strength, we have no wisdom of our own. We've got no righteousness of our own. So in the confession of our basic natures to one another, and we might care to express it in a specific way. I've got a very great problem, brethren and sisters. I've got problems with prayer. Don't you have the same? That's what James is talking about to us. It's not very easy to submit to the power of prayer. It never was meant to be easy because prayer is a sacrifice. It is a ready admission that we can't do anything. The moment we bend our knees or whatever we may do, the moment we do that, we are admitting that we can't do what we need to do. Confessing our faults, brothers and sisters, doesn't mean to say that I did something bad last night and I want you all to know about it. It's got nothing to do with that soever. So verse 20 says, Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and he will hide a multitude of sins. It's not a persistent and a consistent retailing of our faults to one another. It is the fact that we know we are human beings and that we are surmounted with a great problem of weakness in whatever direction that may be. We've all got them. And the only way that those elders will ever understand the man who comes to him is the fact that the elder understands himself. And that's true, isn't it, brethren and sisters? If we understand ourselves, we can understand other people. If we don't understand ourselves, we have got no conception about what happens in the other people's lives. Because we haven't looked in the perfect law of liberty. We've never availed ourselves of the usage and of the tools that God has given to us in the mirror of his word. And so we just are people, maybe, who say we have faith and we cannot show it in our works. Let it be, therefore, brethren and sisters, that the words of James might be able to strengthen us and to uphold us in these days when Yahweh Sabaoth is extremely active on our behalf. And may it be also that the work of the angels might not be in vain, but that we shall see it, and when our Lord arises and comes to us, we shall not only see him, but be like him.